Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Just a little note, some of you may be wondering where Pastor Andrew is the past few weeks. Um, The rapture didn't happen and he didn't somehow get left behind, but um, he's been out in seminary in Golden Gate in San Francisco the past three weeks and He's actually finishing up his schooling in May, and so we as elders gave him permission to take an extended three-week class period so he could get everything done. So uh, pray for Julie as she's at home by herself, and pray for Pastor Andrew as he's out there finishing up his studies. Uh, John chapter 1. Now obviously, I'm not a product of the 60s. I was born in the early 70s. But I can tell you this, I, the 60s had some of the greatest music of all time. And I would say this, the 60s produced probably two of the best television shows of all time, okay? The Brady Bunch and Scooby-Doo. So that's all I'm saying. In the late 60s, during the whole height of the drug culture, when LSD was making its rise on college campuses... There were these reports that college students had taken LSD, they were tripping acid, and one of these acid trips, they had stared at the sun so long that they went blind. So all these stories started circulating about students going blind, staring at the sun. Now, it was debunked, this was not actually true, but it brings up a very important question. How long can you stare at the sun until you start going blind. Weren't you told that as a kid, don't ever stare at the sun or you will go blind, especially during a solar eclipse? A few years back in India, of all places, 50 people went blind because they were staring in the sun hoping to find an image of the Virgin Mary, and they went blind. You see, what happens when you look at the sun, there's something that happens. The sunlight comes in and it hits the retina at the back of the eye, and it can be somewhat painless, and so people don't really know it's happening. And you can look for long periods of time at the sun and actually go blind by looking at the sun. How much energy and light does the sun produce? I, I I got a good trivia question for you. Right now, in the next hour... In the next hour that we're sitting here, here's how much energy the sun will produce in just one hour. 2,880 trillion light bulbs worth of power. Now, if you want to know what that means in everyday math, that means that there will be one light bulb given to everybody on planet Earth, 7 billion people, and that one light bulb will last everybody on planet Earth a lifetime of about 70 years. That's how much energy the sun puts off just in the next hour. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of energy. That's a lot of brightness. But we step back and we think about being blinded by the sun. We think about the power of the sun. Who created the sun? Who shines brighter than the sun? Who's the source of the true light that will put the sun to shame one day? Well, the introductory verses of the Gospel of John tell us who this is. It's Jesus the living Word of God. 
We started the Gospel of John last week, and we're looking at the prologue. And if you remember from last week, we saw three important truths about who Jesus is. Number one, he's the eternal Son of God. He's always existed as the eternal Son of God. Number two, we said Jesus is not the same person as the Father, but he lives in an intimate fellowship with the Father. And then number three, we said Jesus is fully and absolutely God. And so those are foundational truths about who Jesus is. And so what we want to do is we want Jesus to become bigger and bigger as we see him jump off the pages of the Gospel of John. And so for this morning, we're going to have the same theme that we had last week, but we're going to look at it as we go through these next few verses. And so here's the point of today's sermon. It's the same point as last week. In an age of spiritual confusion, you need to know the true Jesus in order to love and obey him properly. You need to know who the true Jesus is. Not a Jesus you've made up in your own mind, not a figment of your own imagination, not a pop culture Jesus, but the true Jesus of the Bible. And the best place that we can go is the introductory verses of the Gospel of John as he lays forth for us who Jesus truly is as the living word. So let's read together John 1, 1 through 5. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's going to list three more important aspects of who Jesus is as he just continues to to show us the glories of who Christ is. And so we're going to explore these three this morning, and then we're going to go take it a little bit further. But here's the first thing that John wants us to know for this morning. Number one, Jesus is the eternal creator of all things. He is the eternal creator of all things. What does it say there in verse 3? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now you may think, well, I thought God created all things. Yes. You're saying Jesus created all things? Yes. And I would take a step further and say the Holy Spirit created all things. Well, you sound like you're confused, Sean. No, we just believe the Trinity, right? One God three distinct persons. It says that Jesus was there at creation. So Jesus was not created. He never came into existence before everything was that was. Jesus was already on the scene. And this tells us that he is the creator of all things. And the original language there in verse 4 really makes it sound like not one single thing was created without Jesus. There's not one single thing in the entire universe that exists apart from Christ putting it there. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says this about Jesus. For by him, talking about Jesus, Paul says, for by him, Jesus, all things were created. Where? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the eternal creator of all things. And this has great implications for you and me this morning. 
Because what it means is that Jesus has created us for him. All things were created through him and for him. So we were created for his glory. Isaiah 43, 6-7 says this, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God created you and me for his glory. And so here's the implication of that. You're not your own. You're not autonomous. You're not free to live however you want to live. You are accountable to your creator, Jesus Christ, who made you. And so there's this great myth in our culture today. You know what the greatest value is in our culture today? Here's the greatest value in our culture. Follow your heart, be true to yourself, and and try to achieve your greatest potential. Think of every Disney film that's come out. Frozen. I'm not saying anything It's Frozen. As a matter of fact, I've never seen Frozen. I'm probably the only one on the earth that's never seen Frozen. But I know enough of the songs and enough of what my wife tells me. And all these things, it's about finding yourself and being true to yourself and casting off the restraints of society and just go out and find yourself. The greatest value in our culture is to be yourself. What happens if yourself is not what the Bible tells you what to be? You see, you and I were created by Jesus for his glory, which means he owns us, he has sovereign rights over us, he dictates how we live, we live under his lordship for his glory. Our true identity is found in Jesus, not in being yourself, not in finding yourself. Your true identity comes in finding your identity in Christ. So that's number one. John wants to say, listen, Jesus is the eternal sovereign creator of all things, including you, for his glory. Here's the second thing. Jesus is the ultimate source, the ultimate source of eternal life. Notice what it says there in verse 4. In Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Two words there, life and light. It really comes back from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. How did he create? He spoke, and what happened? There was light, and there was life. Now, John's not saying Jesus was somehow created, but what he's saying here is that Jesus is the source of light and life. I want you to think about all the world religions and all the philosophies that have come and gone in the history of of humanity. All of them really boil down to wanting to answer two questions. Here's the two questions that almost every world religion wants to answer. Number one, what is the meaning of life? Number two, How do I get knowledge or enlightenment to better myself to understand the meaning of life? In other words, what do all world religions want to know? What is life and what is light? What is life and what is light? Think about it for a moment. The atheist says this. It's impossible to find life and light because there is no God. You just have to deal with the cards that have been dealt to the cosmic universe and deal with evolutionary theory. Listen to a quote from famous um, atheist Richard Dawkins. This is an interesting quote. Quote, The feeling of odd wonder that science can give us is one of the highest experiences of which the human psyche is capable. It is a deep aesthetic passion to rank with the finest that music and poetry can deliver. It is truly one of the things that make life worth living. And it does so, if anything, more effectively if it convinces us that the time we have for living is quite finite. 
the greatest atheist mind on planet earth says the most wondrous glorious thing in this life that you live for is ta-da science that warm your heart that's kind of sad isn't it now i'm not against science but he's saying the greatest awe and wonder that the human psyche can experience in this life the greatest thing i'm made for is science and at the end of the day it really tells me that i don't have much to live for after i die That's the atheist worldview. I want to know light. I want to know life. The best I can do is put my hope in science. Okay, let's look at a mystical new age person. They may say, well, the way to find light in life is to look inside. Find your true potential. Find out who the true you is, that inner spark of light within you. Last April, Oprah Winfrey gave a speech at Stanford University, and her speech was called The Meaning of Life. And here's the advice she gave. She said, quote, your real work is to figure out where your power base is and to work on the alignment of your personality, your gifts you have to give with the real reason why you're here. And so here's the thing. Align your personality with purpose and no one can touch you. Okay, so align your personality with your purpose and no one can touch you. Well, that's great. Think about Hitler for a moment. He had a great personality. He was charismatic. People followed him. And he aligned it with his purpose to take over the world, and nobody touched him for a while. You follow that to its logical conclusion, who's in charge? Me. That's where I find light in life. What about the Buddhist? The Buddhist says, well, there's suffering in this world, and really, we've got to deal with suffering, and it's really an illusion, so the best thing I can do is try to read it to a state of nirvana where I cease to exist, and then my best hope is to be reincarnated to try to get it better the second time around. That's Buddhism. Or Hinduism tries to appease millions and millions of gods that will somehow give you hope. Now, when we went to India one time, I maybe have told the story. We're walking through this town called Eskota, and we were doing prayer walking down the main market, and we walked into a hardware store. I don't think of a hardware store like Home Depot or Lowe's. We're talking about something the size of that piano maybe up there, like a little, a little hut. And I walked in to the owner of the store, and um, we started saying, hey, we're Christians. We follow Jesus. We're here to pray for your community. Can we pray for you and tell you about Jesus? Oh, no. My brother knows about Jesus. He did the the little thing. My brother knows about Jesus, but I don't do Jesus. And I said, well, who do you do? And he had all these pictures behind him of these different gods. And I said, well, can you tell me these different gods and what these gods do? Well, this is Ganesh, and he does such and such, and this is such and such, and this, is the, this helps me with fertility, helps my wife get pregnant. This helps me with my business. This helps me with my crops. Uh, this helps me with my children to get good grades. Uh, and, and so I said, well, do those gods always deliver? Do those gods always give you what you want? He stopped and said, no, we have to, be really, we have to try really, really hard to be good enough to get those gods to bless us. That's Hinduism. Or we can talk about the Muslim. The Muslim tries to find light in life and following the tenets of Islam and Allah and hoping to go to paradise one day. You see, I could go on and on with these false religions and worldviews, but the bottom line is, I want to find life and I want to find light. Where do I find it? I either find it in myself or I find it in a false god. What's the meaning of life? How do I find light? And what does the Gospel of John say? If you want to know those two things, what's the meaning of life and where's true light? John says it's in Jesus. He's the light that gives life. 
So if you want to know what the meaning of life is, it's to live a life giving glory to Jesus. You want to know where light and enlightenment and truth comes from? It comes from the word of Jesus. Where can you find true light and life? Only in Jesus. John eleven twenty five 25 says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And some of Jesus' famous words in John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, when John talks about life here, he's not talking about mere existence. You know, all of us have mere existence. All of us are living right now. You're breathing. When he talks about life, he's not just talking about, okay, I'm going to go through life existing. He's talking about true abundant life, spiritual life, eternal life, sustaining life that's only found in Jesus. So Jesus is the creator of all things, and you're created for his glory. He's the true source of light and life. And number three, John says here, Jesus is the light of the world. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about this imagery of light. It goes all the way back to Genesis. There was darkness, and then there was light. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, John is borrowing from this Genesis imagery, and again, he's not saying that Jesus was created. What he's saying is that there's this darkness over the world, and Jesus comes and he shines in the darkness. And this whole idea of Jesus shining in the darkness, this this light coming, goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. It's a prophecy about the birth of Jesus. We, we, we talk about this a lot at Christmas time. Later on in John, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of John we're introduced to the term darkness. Verse verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What does John mean by darkness? What is darkness? Well, when you trace John's usage of the word darkness in the Gospel of John and in 1 John, what the word darkness means is a world, a world system that's influenced by Satan, the flesh, evil, sin. That's what darkness is. John 3.19 And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So what what happens in darkness? You do evil deeds. 1 John 1, 5-6, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. So what is darkness? Lying, not practicing the truth, not having fellowship with God. 1 John 2, 8 and 9, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So he defines darkness there as hating. So what is darkness? It's evil deeds, it's sin, it's not walking with God, it's hating your brother. Everything that's wrapped up in this world system that's influenced by Satan and your flesh, that is darkness. That is darkness. And so Jesus is the creator of all things. 
He is the one who's the true source of life, and he's the light of the world. Now, John is going to do a little bit of a detour here. In, in verses 6 through 8, he's going to introduce us to John the Baptist and the role of John the Baptist in announcing the coming of Christ. Every one of the Gospels has John the Baptist announcing Jesus. And so let's read verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not the author John. It's John the Baptist he's talking about here. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Okay, so God in his sovereignty sent John the Baptist as if he was almost like an Old Testament prophet. God sent Moses, God sent Isaiah, God sent Elijah. And here we have the, really the final Old Testament prophet. God sent John the Baptist on the scene. And what's the key word that John is supposed to do? He's supposed to witness. What does it say there? There was a man sent from God whose name was John, verse 7. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light. Verse 8, he was not the light, the light but he came to bear witness. John the Baptist is the first witness. We are going to see in the Gospel of John many witnesses to Jesus. The word shows up 33 times. It's a key theme in the Gospel of John, this whole idea that there are going to be witness after witness after witness to who Jesus is. And John the Baptist is the first of the witnesses, which brings up a huge question. Why in the world would John the Baptist have to witness about the light. Isn't life self-evident? If I were to take us all on a field trip outside and say, hey, look up in the sky at that flaming thing called the sun, it's light outside. Most would be like, uh, duh. Or we came in here and we turned all the lights off and I turned the lights on and said, okay, everybody look up. There, those are lights. He's messing with me back there. <laughs> The, the, lights are, the lights are coming on. Hey, hey, it's light. Do you have to witness about lights? If you go out, is not the sun a big enough witness to itself? Isn't life a self-authenticating witness? Nobody has to say, do you look up at the sun? There it is. Nobody has to say, look up, there's light. We know there's light. So why in the world would John the Baptist have to come witness to the light? The only reason why is if you're blind. And every single person born in this world is born spiritually blind, spiritually dead, and spiritually hostile to the gospel. And so you need a witness to the light because you're spiritually blind. You can't see. You can't see Jesus because of your sinful state. Now, I want to just dive into a, to a little controversy here because in verse 5, Depending on what translation you have, you may not have tracked with me. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, there's, this is a hotly debated issue of what this Greek word means. Here's what the Greek word means. It means to seize or to grab hold of. Now, it could mean one of two things. It could mean to seize or grab hold of mentally as in understanding something, or it could mean to seize or grab hold of something physically as in overcoming or mastering something. So if you have a King James or you have a new King James or you have the New American Standard Bible, you may have the word comprehend or understand there. The darkness did not understand it. The darkness did not comprehend it. 
And I don't think that's necessarily a bad translation. They're taking more of the mentally seizing or, or grasping on. The darkness, you can't understand the darkness. If you have an ESV like mine, or you have an NIV, or you have a Holman Christian Standard Bible, it says overcome. And almost all modern scholars follow the overcome as opposed to the understand. So I'm not saying your translation is wrong if you have understand there. I'm just saying it's a hotly debated Greek word how you interpret it. And here's the beauty of it. Could it just be that John is being purposely ambiguous to let it mean both? And here's what I mean by that. It theologically, I think, means both. Theologically, I think it does mean that in your sinful state, you cannot understand the light. You can't comprehend Jesus. You you are spiritually blind to the reality of who Jesus is. I think theologically, you can take that truth. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, talking about lost people. In their case, the God of this world has blinded, has blinded what? The minds of unbelievers to keep them from doing what? To see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. So lost people today have blinders on their eyes spiritually that they can't see Jesus. So, so the darkness cannot comprehend or see or understand the light. I think theologically we can understand that. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are spiritually blind and we are spiritually dead. So we can't see Jesus without something happening to us. Titus 3.3, 3. for we ourselves were once foolish, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, being hated by others and hating one another. So, so this is the truth that the Bible teaches that all lost people are spiritually blind, spiritually dead, and spiritually hostile to Jesus. Now, you may understand the facts of who Jesus is. You may have perfect knowledge of who Jesus is, but in your heart of hearts, because you're blinded, he's boring to you, he's just another good teacher, but you do not see him as the fullness of who he is and surrender your life to him because you're spiritually blind. So you need someone to come and give testimony about Jesus to you so that when that happens, God can come and invade your heart. God can come and take the blinders off of your eyes. God can replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. God can cause you to be born again. God can spiritually make you alive so that you can see Jesus. That happened to Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. One of those who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And when it says she was a worshiper of God, it doesn't mean she was saved. She was just kind of seeking things out. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. So I think that that word, the darkness did not understand it. Theologically, the rest of the Bible teaches that. Lost people in and of ourselves, they cannot see the truth. They cannot understand the truth. They're spiritually blind. They're spiritually dead. They're spiritually hostile until God come and sovereignly takes those blinders off, sovereignly regenerates them, does a work of grace in their hearts to give them the ability to see. But at the same time, I think it's also probably a better translation where John is, as far as the context here, 
The darkness has not overcome it. From the very beginning, John is going to establish that with the coming of Jesus, there's going to be a spiritual war. There's going to be hostility. There's going to be the powers of darkness against the powers of light. There's going to be a spiritual battle. But in the end, the darkness, the sin, Satan, your flesh, it's not going to overpower Jesus. By virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, and an ultimate return, darkness, death, sin is not going to overpower Jesus. John 12, 35. This is the only other time in the Gospel of John where the same Greek word is used. That's why it leads many scholars to believe it's overcome. John 12, 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. There's the same Greek word. The darkness overtake you, overcome you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. So here's the hope. Here's the hope. It may seem really dark right now. It may seem like things that are dark are just winning the day. And so whenever we get tempted, whenever we get persecuted, whenever we get pressured by the culture, whenever everything just seems dark, it seems like the darkness is closing in, the darkness is closing in, just remember this one verse, the darkness will not overcome Jesus. He is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Let's just think about it for a moment. What if I dimmed, don't do this, Roger, but what if I dimmed all the lights in here and got it pitch black? One time that happened in our old building. Remember our old building? It was like in July, and we were cranking the air conditioning up, and we were pulling all the power, and I'm right in the middle of preaching on the return of Christ, and it got pitch black in the sanctuary. You guys remember that? It's God trying to teach us something. And it was so calm, and somebody came up and just brought a little flashlight, and and I preached from a little flashlight. But just think about this. Even in the pitch black darkness of a room, one little candle does what? Overpowers the darkness. So think about it this way. Light and dark may be opposites, but they're not opposites of equal power. The light always outshines the darkness. And that's what John's saying here. Whether it's overcome, whether it's understood, I think both are theologically true in the scriptures. I just think contextually, probably a better translation overcome. In the end, sin, Satan, darkness will not have victory over Jesus. Now, what's the bottom line here? What's the point of all this? What are we supposed to do with this? Okay, so Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the light. Jesus shines in the darkness. John bears witness. I'm spiritually dead. I'm spiritually blind. What am I supposed to do? Well, John doesn't leave us in the dark. Verse 7 tells us the purpose. Look at verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That purpose clause there all might, what? Believe through him. This is the first time the word believe shows up in the Gospel of John, and it's John's favorite word. It shows up over a hundred times. Every time, almost every time, John uses that term believe, it is active, it is ongoing. It's not just a passive taking in knowledge. It's a, it's a surrendering of your entire life to Jesus in belief. So here's what we need to do. We need to establish from the very beginning of the Gospel of John what it means to believe in Jesus. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? You know, you can know some historical facts about who Jesus is. You can know he was a good teacher. 
You can know and, and believe a lot of things about him, but that's not the type of belief that John uses. That's not the type of belief the Bible uses. What does the Bible mean when it talks about believing into Jesus? Well, there's three aspects of belief, and all of them need to happen. There are three things that really need to happen when you believe in Jesus. And here's the first. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me just give you another, another passage of Scripture. James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Are demons Christians? No, but they believe in God. So there's such a thing as a demons believing in God, but it doesn't save you. So what is saving faith? What is true, authentic faith? Three things that we need to know about the way John uses this word. First of all, it involves knowledge. Yes, there has to be knowledge. This is where your mind has to know the facts. You have to have the gospel presented to you. You have to know who Jesus is. You have to know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You've got to know that he is the creator. You've got to know he's the light of the world. You've got to know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. You've got to know that you're a sinner. There are facts that you need to know, but that's not enough. There's a lot of people that will come into this place and walk out of this place with knowledge of the facts of Jesus and not be saved. It's a start. You have to have the knowledge and the facts. You have to have that. Your head has to be filled with the truth of who Christ is. But you have to take it a step further. Not only do you need to have knowledge, but number two, you have to have what's called either assent or approval. You've got to get to the point where, okay, I understand the truth of who Jesus is, and I believe it's true for me. I know I'm a sinner. I know he died on the cross. I know I'm going to go to hell without him. I know I need to repent and believe. I know I need my sins forgiven. I know that Jesus is the only way. That is, I am assenting to that. I'm approving of that. It's more than just head knowledge, but I'm actually believing this with my heart. But you can still do all that and walk out this place not saved. What's the third thing? Trust. This is where you say, okay, I've got the knowledge. I know the truth. I know who Jesus is. I know what the gospel is, and I know it's true for me. I know that Jesus is my Savior. I know that Jesus died for me. I know that I will go to hell if I don't trust in Christ. I know I need to be forgiven. I know all these things. I approve of all these things, but I'm taking the step where I'm actually going to place my entire trust and faith and hope in Jesus alone to save me. That's true saving faith where you actually give your entire life. You know what's interesting? John uses the word believe into Jesus. Believe into. It's this whole idea that we're jumping our entire lives into Christ. You're not just sticking your foot in the, you know, the, in the, in the shallow end of the pool trying him out. You're diving your entire self into who Christ is. Believing. So here's the real question for you this morning. You know, there's only two worlds John's going to only give you two worlds. You're either in darkness or you're in light. You're either in the world of Satan or you're in the world of God. You're either lost or you're saved. There's no middle ground where you're just kind of deciding which way. No, the Bible will not allow you to do that. You're either in darkness or you're in light. You're either lost or you're saved. You're either one of the child of the devil or you're a child of God. There's no middle ground. So the question is, which one are you? Have you come to that point where you've placed your faith in Jesus. You've crossed that line of faith. You've trusted him. Where is your trust this morning? Do you believe that Jesus is your creator and and you're accountable to him and you were created for his glory? Do you believe that he's the only source of light and life? 
He is the meaning of life. He is the source of life. He is the source of eternal life. Do you believe that he, his light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it? Do you believe these things about Jesus? Not just do you believe them in your head, but if you come to that point where you've crossed the line of faith and you've plunged your entire life into Jesus and you've given yourself fully to him and said, Jesus, I am fully, 100, absolutely trusting in you alone to be my savior. Because if you haven't done that, you're still in darkness. And my prayer for you would be today you cross the line. You move out of darkness into light. So if you've never done that before, if you're here today and you know, you're like, you're not going to stand up and raise your hand and tell everybody your deep, dark secrets, but just there in your seat today, you know in your heart of hearts, I'm not saved. I am in darkness. I am guilty. I am a sinner. What better day than today than to cross that line and say, Jesus, I'm placing all of my trust in you to save me. And you will find this. If you admit that and you confess that and you believe that, you will find the arms of Jesus wide open ready to save you. Jesus has never once turned away a sinner that's come to him in repentance and faith. Some of you here have already done that. Most of us here have probably already done that. We've crossed over from darkness to light. Would you just spend time this morning praising Jesus that he saved you out of that? Praise Jesus that the light overcomes the darkness. No matter what you're going through, no matter what darkness you're going through, the light has overcome. Jesus is victorious. Newsflash, Jesus wins in the end. We don't have to like wait to find out how the end of the movie is going to happen. We know he wins. Better to get on the winning side today by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. He's the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning in prayer. Whether you're in darkness or you're in light, only you know that. And only God knows that. So it's kind of foolish to play games with God because he knows your heart anyway and he reads your mind. Best thing is to do is to be honest before God and just confess. Just admit, just, just open yourself up to him and tell him that you need to be saved. And maybe there's some of you here today that don't quite understand it all and it's kind of confusing and maybe it's new to you and maybe after the service you want to just come down and talk to me. Maybe I can answer your questions. Maybe I can pray with you. There'll be others down here that can do that as well. Just spend some time. You just, just take the opportunity this time for you just to be alone with God. Pray, commune with Jesus this morning. Take advantage of this time and go to him in prayer. Help us to remember this morning that you are the creator. And because you're our creator, you own us and you created us for your glory. May we live for your glory. May we live not for our own glory, but for your glory. And Jesus, help us to know this morning that you are the true light and life. That all the meaning and all the purpose and all the, everything that life truly is supposed to be comes in you. You're the only source of that. And Lord Jesus, help us to understand that you are the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Lord, there may be some this morning that are in darkness. 
They're in the world of darkness. They're in the domain of darkness, and they know that. And on your cross, you've rescued them to the kingdom of light. Would today be the day they place all of their trust and all their faith into you, Jesus? Would today be the day of their salvation? Would they cross over from being in darkness into light? And Lord, for those of us that have done that, would we just rejoice that you overcome darkness, that you're our light, you, you're light unto our feet and a lamp that lights up our path. That Jesus, you're the, you're the way, the truth, and the life. You're the light of the world. Help us to, to just rejoice and enjoy you this morning and what you've done to overcome the darkness. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you are. As we've been praying these past couple of weeks, would you become bigger and bigger to us as we read the Gospel of John and see who you truly are. Help us not to be confused in an age of spiritual confusion, but to know who the true Jesus is so that we can worship you, we can love you, we can obey you properly and faithfully and consistently for your glory alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.